copy of God's Word, and I hope you do. Find Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. It's incredible to believe we've been working our way over a period of time through the Bible. We started with Genesis 1-1. We find ourselves at Exodus 33, and there are only, after today, two more sermons in the book of Exodus. And you can say that you've made your way through it along with us, right? It's been an incredible journey, and we find ourselves at sort of the peak of the action. If you could call it the season finale, sort of, is building as we continue through the book of Exodus. Find chapter 33, and let's read God's word together. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land to which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people, for if in a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Harib onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the people, See, you say to the people, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? 
And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to you, to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of God. Let me introduce you to one of my favorite Bible teachers. He went to be with the Lord about five, six years ago. It's this guy. His name's R.C. Sproul, right? He leads a, a, a ministry called Ligonier Ministries. You can find it online, theologian, author. And he tells a story that I think sets up Exodus 33 perfectly. Before Sproul looked like this, he used to look like this. Dude, that's grainy. That didn't look good at all. That didn't look nearly as good as when I put it on there. But I was going to say, kids, the way you're looking at the way he's dressed, you know, one day your kids are going to look at you the same way. But it's not quite as effective when he's that grainy, right? But he tells a story about when he first became a professor he was teaching intro to Old Testament to 250 freshmen that came in. And parents and educators in this room understand this. You've got to be very particular in your assignment instructions, right? Or the kiddos will just take advantage of every loophole they can. He set out in the syllabus, there were three term papers, three term papers, and each one had to be turned in one zero, and it would fail you for the whole semester. The first one was due on September the 30th, the second one on October the 30th, and the third on November the 30th. And he made it clear they needed to be on his desk at noon unless you were confined to a hospital, a fam an immediate family member had died, or you got struck by lightning. They needed to be on his desk. He's like, everyone understand the assignment? And of course, all the kids nodded. Well, September 30th came around, and 225 students turned in the paper on time. That left 25 of them shaking in their boots. They'd forgotten about the term paper. They're like, oh, professor, give us an extension. And so Sproul, he's, he's a new professor I'm going to relent. I'll give the kids a break. He gave them an extension. October the 30th rolled around. This time, 200 students turned in the paper on time, and 50 cowered in fear. They begged for mercy. They go, Dr. Sproul, it's midterms. We had a homecoming last week. There's just so much going on. Please give us an extension. Sproul showed, showed kindness. He said, okay, but don't let it happen again. And Dr. Sproul became the talk of campus. He's a cool teacher. You want to take him? And 30 days later, 
that final paper came due. 150 students turned it in on time and 100 just casually stroll in without their paper, not a care in the world. Dr. Sproul says, where is your paper? One student says, don't worry, bro, chill. We'll get it to you. He stopped them right there and he pulled out the dreaded, this was when they had the black book, the dreaded black book and the red pen. And he said, Johnson, is one of the students, where is your term paper? I don't have it, professor. So Sproul wrote an F in the book. Greenwood, where's your paper? I don't have it, sir. And he put an F in the book. What do you think was the reaction of these students? Unmitigated fury. With one voice, they cried out, that's not fair. Sproul said, what, what, what was that? Did I just hear you say that that wasn't fair? And Sproul was furious at this point. He said, okay, I don't ever want to be thought of as unfair or unjust. He said, hey, is it justice that you want? And one of the students calls out, yes. And he says, well, I seem to remember that last time your paper was late, right? That student said, yes. He said, well, okay, I'll go back and change that grade to an F. So we erase their grade and put an F in. And then he says, does anyone else want justice? The room was quiet. Do you see what, what happened here? The first time, they were pleading with humility. And Sproul said, sure. The second time, they begged him, please, give us an extension. And by the third time, they not only assumed mercy, but demanded it. They assumed now that he was obligated to be gracious to them. And here's the point for us. We do that with God. We presume on God's grace and we presume on his presence. We believe and can come to believe that God owes us something. Grace, mercy, free access to his presence, and that just isn't the case. Exodus 33 brings us into the classroom, not with Dr. Sproul, but with the Lord Almighty. And here's the lesson that I think we need to learn through this whole passage. The main idea, the main point is this. God's presence cannot be presumed. It must be pursued. I'll let you get that down because I know that's a bit to fill in there. God's presence cannot be presumed. It must be pursued. God doesn't owe us anything. We have no authority over heaven. Heaven has authority over us. We must be careful assuming and presuming on God rather than pursuing him the way he's called us to. And in Exodus 33, we find ourselves in the middle of major drama. Remember, Moses has just spent 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai, receiving instructions from the Lord, everything from the Ten Commandments to the layout of the tabernacle. Moses left Aaron in charge to keep track of the people until he returned. And while the leader was away, the nation was at play. While Moses was receiving 
the commandments of God, the nation was at the foot of the mountain breaking every single one of those commandments. He returns to find the people steeped in idolatry, worshiping a golden calf, deceived by sin, and unwilling to take responsibility. The whole nation was corrupted. They'd abandoned their God, and judgment fell in the form of Levites, which were the priestly tribe, taking their sword to the unrepentant. Remember, in these days, the priests functioned as the judge and the law enforcement officers in the nation of Israel. But judgment also fell in the form of a plague. Moses pleaded for mercy for the people. He even said, God, take me instead. But God said, no, I will only take a perfect, sinless substitute. And we drop in here as Moses and God continue to interact with one another. And it sounds like good news at first. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land to which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I'm going to drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He's, going to, he's not going to take the promised land from them, and he's still going to get rid of all the ites on the way there. He calls the people, even in their judgment, leave the mountain. I'm going to send an angel before you and drive out all these people. It's the same way he spoke of the exodus from Egypt earlier in the book of Exodus. And it's the same promise he made in the previous chapter. This seems like wonderful news. They've blown it, but God's still going to let them have the land. But then it takes a turn in verse 3. Look what he says. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. God says, I'm going to get you where you're going to go, but I'm not going to go with you. My angel will be a GPS for you, but I can't dwell among sinful, unrepentant people any longer. He says, see the judgment. You can have the land, but you won't have the Lord. And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. This is in your notes. Would we be content to have the promised land without our promised Lord? And I fear many of us would be content with that. I fear many of us would love living in a land flowing with milk and honey, 401ks with above market value return, safe neighborhoods, under $2 gas. What if we could have every good gift, but just didn't have the giver? Would we be content with worldly goods without God? to have the promised land without the Lord. Now, obviously, God dwells everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. But here he's speaking about his special presence, a blessed communion, relationship with the living God. This is a real warning because often, friends, we can mistake wanting to be with God with really just wanting to have stuff from God. This so often is revealed in the way we talk about heaven. And it shows us that maybe many of us don't think this punishment would be all so bad. I hear people talk about it all the time that they want streets of gold, no sickness, 
They want their family to be there. They'd settle for a small house on the hill because a mansion's a lot to clean. But what is missing from that picture? Jesus, God is missing from the picture. Are we content to live life without God? To have the gift without the giver. That's really the cardinal sin of mankind. You can go read that later if you want in Romans chapter 1. One of the things that it tells us is that mankind's core problem is that we will look, recognize that there are certain things that have been given to us that we contribute nothing to, and yet we don't give thanks to God who gave it to us. Thanksgiving, as we enter into that season next week, is a deeply Christian and theological holiday. Because it's to recognize there are things in your life you had nothing to do with, and who will you give thanks to it for? If you saw these beautiful sunrises and sunsets, and there's something that wells up in you to want to give thanks for them, who can you give thanks for the sunsets? The one who made the sunset. The good food we're going to enjoy. Sure, there were hands that made it, but friends, God made ham and it was good. We shouldn't trade God for lesser things because God's presence is the most important thing you can have or enjoy. And I'm afraid we can be tempted to presume that God is just always going to be with us. To assume and presume that he'll be gracious to us regardless of what we do. To presume that, that, that we are just free to stroll into his presence casually on our terms. But we don't get to casually enter God's presence. That's what the nation realized as this terrifying judgment came upon them. And look how they responded. Verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Herob onward. The people respond to this judgment with repentance. They give the right answer this time as opposed to Aaron, last chapter, who blamed everybody else for his sin. And they did this by removing their ornaments. In other words, they didn't put on all the nice things that they might have had. Remember, when, the, when they were set free out of Egypt, the Egyptians gave them a bunch of stuff gold, nice things, because they frankly wanted the Israelites gone. There were all these plagues. They're like, here, just take my stuff and get out of here. They plundered the Egyptians, but now the Israelites were being plundered, ridding themselves of all that had begun to entangle them. Remember, the gold rings they'd been given, they had just turned into a golden calf to worship. And they realized that they could have stuff or God, and they chose God. Because here's an important thing for us to realize. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry, and then going about doing the same thing you've been doing. 
But biblical repentance means making real changes in light of real sin before a real God. And repentance for this people at this moment meant setting aside their fancy ornaments and the finer things. The problem wasn't that they had stuff. It was that stuff had them. They made a golden calf out of golden earrings. What might they do with other stuff? And here's the point, and this is in your notes. The way back into God's presence was to turn back from their sin. The way back into God's presence was for them to turn back from their sin. It was to be pursued through repentance. And let me say this. Even in our churches, repentance has fallen on hard times. Repentance is often just, well, say you're sorry, go on about it. But no, repentance is a turning away. It isn't perfection, but it is a new direction. Let me give you some examples. There are some who come to me, young men, others, who are like, man, I really want to stop indulging in inappropriate things on the internet. And my first question is, well, what are you doing about it? Well, um, like, well, I mean, do you sleep with your phone right next to you at night? Do you have unlimited access to anything? You don't have any blocks on your computer? You don't have an accountability partner that you talk with about these things? Or others, you may want to repent of bitterness. And then I go, well, what are you doing about it? And they're like, I, I don't know. And then they begin to tell me all the things that that person did to them. It's the first thing they want to talk about. Friends, here's the thing. To turn away from sin means to turn ourselves towards God, and it may mean sacrificing certain things in order to have something greater. It may mean having certain things on your phone or putting your phone away when that temptation comes upon you. It may mean having to stop yourself from talking about what's been done to you to every person who will listen It will mean trusting God's way to do whatever we can to turn our hearts and our lives toward him. Grace-driven efforts, embracing the grace of God that we're forgiven and loved and adopted, and then turning toward him for help. God's presence cannot be presumed upon. We must pursue it through repentance. But that's not all that we encounter in this text. The story sort of cuts away from the action, and we get a bit of background about a tent called the tent of meeting. Look at verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up each standing at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned around to go to the camp, his assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, he's going to become important later, right? A young man would not depart from 
the tent. So what's going on here? There's this tent that's outside the camp. Remember, we've been reading a few chapters ago from chapter 25 to chapter 31 all about the tabernacle, right? This giant tent that the people were going to build to sort of function as a temple, but that hasn't been built yet, right? They've just been given the instruction, so they needed something in the meantime. So Moses had a temporary tent, and notice we're told several times it's outside the camp. It's outside the camp, far off from the camp, because God could not dwell among this people. God is so holy, and he will not and could not dwell among unrepentant rebels without consuming them. So God would meet with Moses in a tent outside the camp. And we see when Moses entered, I want you to imagine this. He's going in this tent, and a cloud just descends over it. And Moses would enjoy such intimacy with God. We're told they would speak face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, I don't think we need to stress the details too literally because the passage goes on to say that man can't see God's face and live. John 4 tells us God is spirit. This is a phrase, though, showing a unique and intimate relationship that Moses had that the rest of the people didn't. The people couldn't even enter the tent, but Moses could go in and talk to God as a friend. I want you to imagine if you wanted to speak to one of our federal politicians. I don't know why you would ever want to do such a thing. But let's say you did need to contact one of them. If you're going to get in contact with them, you're going to have layers of bureaucracy to get to them. Assistance after assistance and assistance to the assistance. You will have to go through and maybe you will get connected to them if you ever do at all. But if you know them, if you're friends with them, you can just pull out the cell phone, give them a call, give them a text, and they'll get back to you right away. And so the people could contact God through Moses, but Moses could just pick up the phone, go to the tent of meeting, and talk and speak to God. And this teaches us an important truth, and here it is. The way into God's presence is through a mediator. The way into God's presence is always through a mediator. We've talked about this before, but it's important that we realize that there is always a go-between between us and God. And even Moses likely communed with God through an angel, we're told in other passages, who functioned as a mediator. And we must do the same. But here's the good news. Our mediator isn't Moses in a desert. No, God has promised a greater mediator, a greater go-between between us and God through Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews chapter 9, 11 to 12. And when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Here's his point. He's telling us Jesus is superior to Moses because Jesus is God himself, second person of the Trinity. He has a closer relationship with the Father than any of us could imagine because he's of one nature with him. Jesus is a superior mediator because he didn't enter a tent in the desert. He entered into heaven itself. 
God didn't have to descend to him. He just ascended to the Father. Jesus is a superior mediator because he didn't need to offer bulls and goats to enter the tent. Even Moses needed sacrifices to forgive his sin, but Jesus didn't need the blood of bulls and goats. He gave his own life as a ransom for others. He was sinless. He became the sacrifice. He didn't need one. And Jesus is superior to Moses because the redemption he purchased is eternally better. Jesus purchased eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and goats could never forgive a single sin, but the blood of Jesus cleanses from every sin. The point is we've got a better access to God than the people in the desert did. And this is why the covenant made with and through Moses will never get you into the presence of God. So many people come to it and think, man, I just need to keep all the words of the law, and I'll be right with God. Friends, that didn't work for them, and it was never designed to accomplish that. This is why we come to the Father through the Son. We come to the Father through Jesus as our mediator. This is why when we pray and we make a request, we say in Jesus' name. You know we don't just like tack that on because it sounds real spiritual? But it's because we're coming by the mediation, by the work, by the representation of Jesus, by his works, not by ours. Jesus is the tent by which we can enter and commune with God. And God must be pursued his way through his chosen mediator. For the nation of Israel, it was Moses. For us as believers in a new and better covenant, it is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The day before Jesus was crucified, he shared a meal with his disciples. He prepared their hearts for him to go away. He's going to return to the Father. And one of the disciples spoke up, Thomas, and Thomas said this, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus responded, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The way into the presence of God is through the person of Jesus. It's not through empty religious rituals. It's not through first cleaning up your life and getting to live more morally than coming to Jesus. It's not through a journey of self-discovery. The way to the presence of God is through the person of Jesus alone. Moses would enter the tent, and as he did, the people would rise up and worship from afar. But through Jesus as our mediator, friends, we don't have to rise up and worship from afar. We can come right into God's presence and give him worship to which he is pleased. Friends, through Jesus, we don't need a tent. If you're in Christ, you are the tent. We can call this building a sanctuary all we want, but it's a sanctuary not because there's something special about this place. It's something special about the people that meet here together. The place where God is worshipped and where God meets with man is here because people filled with his spirit are here. And in the last half of the passage, we get a glimpse inside the tent. Moses is going to ask God to continue to be with them. He pled for mercy in the last chapter, and he says, God, be with us as we take off from the foot of the mountain. Look at verse 12. 
Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring, this, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people. In other words, he said, God, if you've called me, if you're going to be gracious to me and show your favor to me, I need you to show me how you're going to accomplish this. I don't want to lead this people by myself. They just made a golden calf. You think I can handle this on my own? Be gracious, show me. And here's how God responds, verse 14. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Jesus said these same words, right? Come unto me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to God, these are profound words, verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known if I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, Moses is saying, if you don't go with us, God, we're not going. Wherever you are, God, that's where we want to be. We're your people, your distinct nation, and how are we going to live that out by ourselves? He says, God, we need your presence in order to be your people. And this raises a profound question for us as the people of God here at Crossroads. We need to consider this question. Are you living in such a way that God's presence is a necessity and not a preference? Moses doesn't say, God, it would sure be nice to have you with us. No, Moses says, if you're not there, I don't know where else to go. Notice, Moses didn't make his decisions based on where everybody else was going. He didn't go, well, I want to go with these people because that's just sort of the hip-hop place in town. Or, well, I don't want to go there, be, or I, I want to go there and not there because these people in the camp really upset me. He said, no, I want to be where God is and I'll do anything to be there. And this isn't just a question for us individually, but friends, it's a question for us as a church. Are we trying to go forth in our own strength? Are we content walking in our own power? Do we have a big enough vision for our lives and our church that it will require God to step in and be with us? And I talk about in the business world, it's called BHAG, Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals. Friends, do we have big, hairy, audacious goals big enough that we need God to accomplish them because we simply can't? Do we desire and have big enough desires for our family to cause us to lean on God to do what only he can do? Do we realize that we would still be in Egypt if left to our own power? The most important thing you can pray for is God's presence in your life. Because if God is with you and God is for you, then who can be against you? And Moses pleads, where your presence is, is where 
I want to be. Without you, God, none of this is worth it. We need your presence to be your people. And Jesus says where two or three are gathered together as a church and they're binding and loosing in the kingdom of God, friends, he says, I am there among them. Jesus is in his church and among us, and we need him in order to accomplish that vision. And the conversation continues. Verse 17 The Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And as if that's not bold enough, Moses prays this, please show me your glory. What an incredible request. Remember, Moses was on Mount Sinai, and God literally spoke the Ten Commandments to him out of fire. He saw in in chapter 24 the beautiful sapphire floor of heaven. He's praying in a tent covered with cloud. Believe me, if cloud came down this morning, y'all would be a little like, uh, you'd either really want to come back or really not want to come back, right? If a cloud of glory descended on this place. And yet he pleads to see the glory of God in an even greater way. And God grants the request. Verse 19, he says this, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. First, a few things to notice. Notice, when he prays for God's glory, God says, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. The goodness of God and the glory of God are equated with one another. You want to see his glory? See his goodness. You want to know what goodness is in a culture that's so confused? Look for the glory of God. See, the glory of God is the greatest end and the greatest good in all the universe. Did you understand this? The universe does not exist for your individual good, whatever you might define that as. But no, the universe exists for the glory of God and for the good of all people, and those are the one and the same mission. John Piper famously put it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, the more we see and enjoy the goodness of God, the more he is glorified in ever-increasing measure. God displays his glory to Moses. Moses could not see his face and live, so Moses gets to see God's back. And it's at this moment I wish Moses would have told me what he saw, right? He's doing more showing than telling, or he's doing more telling than showing. I would love to know what this looked like, at least for now, because friends, there's a day coming when we will get access to more than Moses saw. In fact, that's the last question I want us to consider out of this text. Do we long to see his 
face. Do we long to see his face? Because, friends, Moses got to see his back. But if you are in Christ, there is a day coming when you will see his face and you will live. In the last chapter of the Bible, we get a glimpse of eternity. New heavens and new earth forever in the presence of God. And this is what we read. Revelation chapter 22. This is the last page of your Bible. We read this, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There'll be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The incredible future that God has for you for believing in Jesus is right there. What Moses experienced in a tent, you can now enjoy individually, and one day, friends, is going to be experienced over every inch of the universe. In fact, the whole Bible could be summarized as God making the whole of creation his tent of meeting. He wants to take what Moses enjoyed personally there and spread it everywhere. And there we will see his face, enjoy his goodness and glory and worship and reign forever. But we cannot presume that that will be the future for everyone. There are folks around you today who do not have the eternal hope found in Jesus But Jesus has given you the way, the message, the way to enjoy his presence and see his face forever. Will we share that good news with our friends, our family, our co-workers? Because God told the nation that they could be brought out of Egypt. They could have the land, but they wouldn't have him. And there are so many in this world today who are missing the most incredible blessing of all, God himself. They're going to enjoy thanksgiving without being able to offer the truest form of thanksgiving, which is worship. But the good news is that God's not left us to himself. He's loved us and shown mercy to us. He sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross on our place, to rise again from the dead, so that through faith we might be sealed by his Spirit and be able to enjoy him forever. Jesus actually tells us that the moment we believe is the moment eternal life begins. You can enjoy him now. You can taste of his glory and his goodness, and friends, it's going to be an ever-increasing measure for all eternity. But it must be pursued through Jesus and enjoyed through abiding in him in word and prayer. Are you presuming on God Do you assume he's going to be gracious to you? Do you assume that he'll give you access to him, though you've not followed and walked in his ways and his instructions? Whether in your life or in the life of others around you, is it time to enter into right relationship with God? Because today you can do so. You can call on him right where you are, pursue him by faith, and he will meet you and bring you into a tent of meeting relationship with him. Because God has one way that man might be saved. One mediator, 
the man, Christ Jesus, who's made himself a ransom for all. Today, you can walk right into life of living in the tent of meeting and communion with God. You can speak with him face to face as one speaks with a friend and do it based on grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The invitation is to seek him while he may be found and to experience life everlasting and full of glory. Today, if you need to receive Jesus, maybe you need to set aside something in your life in repentance. Maybe you just need prayer. I'll be down front during this time of response. But friends, don't presume on tomorrow. Don't presume on where you are with God. Confirm and make your salvation assured today and give thanks and honor and worship to him with all you have. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have been so incredibly kind to us. You have been so incredibly kind to us and to allow us into your presence through the man Christ Jesus, through your son, fully God, fully man, through coming to us, we can speak to you as a man speaks to his friend. We can call right on you, and the Bible says you will meet us where we are and give us mercy and grace for our time of need. But God, may we not presume on that. May we not assume on that. May we not take that lightly, but may we give you the thanksgiving and the honor and the worship that you are due And God, we do long to see your face. And we ask that you would have that hope fill us with such assurance that we'll live in light of it. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here today who does not have that assurance of faith, that they would not leave here until they know that they're assured with you. They've got a mediator before God and that eternal life is theirs in Christ Jesus. Bless our time together, be honored in our worship, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. You have led me through the fire in 
darkest night you are close like no other I've known you as a father I've known you as a friend and I have lived in the goodness of God all my life you have been the goodness of God is by enjoying the gifts he's given us, the church family, the food, all the good stuff. And so I've been instructed to tell you food will start about 10 to 15 minutes from now. We're going to be bringing stuff in. So you're welcome. Take breaks if you need to go, whatever you need to do. But that'll be, it's about 1114. So about 1125, 1130, we'll begin feasting together. But I'm going to close us in prayer, both for the food we're going to enjoy and as a benediction to our service today. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to give you thanks for every good gift. We don't want to be people who enjoy your promised land without also enjoying the promised Lord, who don't give you praise and thanksgiving and honor for all the good things that you give to us. And so, Lord, thank you for this food, for the friendships, for the people, for all that we're going to enjoy today, for being able for us to hear from your word today. And we want to give you thanks, ask that you'd bless it, and we give you honor to you who's able to keep us from stumbling and who'll present us before the presence of your glory with great joy to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen.